Uh, hello. I think hopefully some of the points that David's brought up will actually be reflected again in, in my talk. What I'm going to do is explore some of the concepts around peace and then move on to have a look at really reflection on my own practice within HE, uh, working as a, a lecturer and a researcher, studying peace and trying to teach peace studies, political psychology at, at higher education. And I'll also look at some of, the, some of the things that come out of that, some of the things that might be reflecting why we need to bring in elements of peace education earlier as well as the students before waiting to HE. So that's, that's the kind of topics I'm going to talk about. has never read the Seville Statement, I would like to, I can give you a copy afterwards. But basically the idea is a number of scholars from all different disciplines came together in the late 1980s and uh, wrote some proposals that really indicated that since war begins in the minds of men, it is in the minds of men that defences of peace must be constructed. The idea that war in fact was something that was invented, it wasn't something we were indeed predisposed to do and we could kind of move away from that. But these ideas really aren't anything essentially new in a way. If you look at Albert Einstein, for example, he's talking about these kind of things before, previous to the Second World War. Uh, and again, putting the idea that we need to really deal with these issues because wars become more destructive, uh, nuclear bombs, etc., etc. So we have to deal with these issues um, and move forward and try to think about solving our problems differently. And again, Margaret Mead and the research, I think, from social anthropology shows as well that war is an invention. You can find cultures where war does not exist. People do not practice warfare. So again, it's not a biological necessity, but there's a view, a popular opinion in a way, that there is a biological necessity, that war is something that we have to do. So I want to look at, some of, look at that in terms of psychology and try to understand the conceptions of war and the conceptions of peace and where they come from, what they mean to us, how, we, how do we get to our knowledge of war and peace. Basically, how we think about war and peace is the developmental, the change over time, the change with our experiences, change with age. Peace is really a second order concept. People don't understand peace until they understand war. You know, children play war, they find it very difficult to play peace. So if you're, if you're working with children, children tend not to really understand peace until after they understand war. So generally about the age of eight, you know, children have concepts of war and begin to develop concepts of peace. I'm not going to go into this in too much detail, but basically the development of the understanding of peace and war really comes from our interaction with society, the child's interaction with others, the influence of social agents on the child, the media, um, the church, education, etc. And, and the sort of dynamic relationship that is, i.e. the child selects certain pieces of information, some agents, for example, abdicate responsibility. So when I grew up in Northern Ireland, for example, the education system didn't teach us about the conflict. You learned that from your parents. You learned that in the community. Okay, so the influence of these different social agents as well are important. So how do we get our understandings and conceptions of peace and peacemaking? Okay, so basically they're personal construction. So everyone's conceptions of peace, there's no uh, objectivity to it. They're subjective reality and the ideas about them are really influenced by <coughs> multitude of different factors. The child and the individual grows up. The other thing we have is this sort of subjective knowledge becomes shared across the population. So people begin to have the same idea of what peace is, the same idea of what war is, the same idea of why wars start, and they become reality. People then begin to think, well, this is actually how war starts. This is the reasons for conflict. This is the reasons for peace. Because this all, all the subjective knowledge becomes shared and actually feels as if it's real. And one of the things that's important, I think, when we're trying to look at how do we build peace, is the fact that 
this is always a subject to change. People's attitudes towards peace and peacemaking has changed. Uh, some research we did with adolescents in Northern Ireland, we looked at the impact of the peace negotiations on how people felt about peace, how people felt about war, and, and the peace process, and how to achieve peace. And really, before the ceasefires in, in the early 1990s, or the mid-1990s, when you ask children, how would you bring about peace in Northern Ireland, they couldn't tell you. They just didn't know. So it was after the ceasefires, people began to see that they could create peace, that the conflict could change, the dynamics of the conflict were changing, and things like that. So events can make a difference, and inter interactions and interventions can make a difference. I'll just give a, um, any, uh, this is a sort of a famous psychological experiment, really from the, late, uh, the early 1950s, late 1940s. Uh, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail on it because we don't have a lot of time. But basically, it was kind of like a Lord of the Flies. Um, and I kind of find it quite interesting that whenever Mustafa Sharif conducted this experiment, it was the same time that, that uh, Golding was actually writing the book. But basically, what uh, Mustafa Sharif did was took a lot of 10, 11-year-old kids, American kids, checked them all over to make sure they didn't have any sort of psychological impairments, matched them up for things like religion, interest, height, weight, all this kind of thing, took them off to a summer camp, and then really initiated conflict between them. So these randomly assigned groups began to fight with each other. And then what he also did was then intervened and actually reduced the conflict. But what, it really, what the study really shows is that um, you can't influence these things. These things are in a group. It's not because these happen to be Americans or happen to be boys that had some sort of biological predisposition. It's the idea that you can create a situation of social factors, things like competition, cooperation, and things that can actually change uh, and cause conflict. But even once you've caused the conflict, you can then actually intervene again and reduce that conflict and bring the groups back together again. There's an important um, study in it that shows us that peace and war really are in the mind in a way, and they can be changed, they can be altered. So in a way, from the civil statement of violence, then they argue that therefore we are not condemned to war and violence because of our biology. And indeed, um, uh, William James, in his uh, 1910 article, The Moral of Equivalent to War, this is the first two sentences of the article, I think it sum, sums up the idea perfectly. Um, the war against war is, is, goi is going to be no holiday excursion or camping party. And if you think back in 1910, William James was saying these ideas, that basically we needed to deal with how we view war. War and the need for the military and military life and the glory and the honour is sort of instilled in our culture. We need to think of a new way of changing that. And this is back in 1910, and we still really haven't moved a huge, you know, a huge much in the last uh, 100 years. We're not that much further on from that. But again, we need to sort of tackle these issues, tackle how we think about war and whether war is real. But it's interesting as well, at the same time that the civil statement of violence was getting written, there was some research done by, uh, by Go uh, Goldstein, which actually looked at sort of commonly held beliefs about war and conflict. And again, I'll not go through all these ideas, but basically they tend to show that there are some people who believe that war is biological. People believe there's a genetic influence. People believe that murder, um, terrorism, etc., are caused by mad or crazy people. So there's a sort of a reductionist idea that changes how people feel about conflict and the inevitability of conflict. And it's that attitude that stops us really dealing with issues of peace. So even today, you know, people still have these sort of ideas and believe that this is what a, a kind of a mythology of warfare and a kind of mythology of um, of violence. And one of the things that, if you look at the civil statement of violence, for example, it suggests that we should do is all take responsibility 
and think about what we could do as an individual to try to uh, stem those ideas about violence and try to challenge these ideas. So I guess for that question, you know, what can I do? Um, I'll have a little look at some of the things I've tried to do uh, as a psychologist to try to tackle these issues. Uh, one of them really is to try to create a sort of symphony of research and teaching. I'm not sure how harmonious this symphony is at times, you know, when you sit and mark an essay and things like that, but it's an idea to try to bring this all together. So what I've done is had I've sort of research aspects of peace and conflict since I did my PhD. I've been teaching aspects of peace psychology and peace studies within a psychology curriculum since the mid-1990s. So actually building a module on peace psychology and um, bringing also aspects of peace psychology and peace studies into things like developmental psychology, social psychology, teaching through those mechanisms as well. Um, as I say, yeah, trying to intertwine, inter intertwine peace studies into mainstream psychology as well. Trying to build it in, study it theoretically, but look at these sort of concepts. And more recently, um, we've actually began to develop our own standalone programs. So we've developed a, we're developing an MA program in conflict transformation. We developed a BA program in war and peace studies. So I'd actually bring in these dedicated programs to peace studies as well. So those are the sort of things I've tried to do to challenge this, these ideas. And the key aim is the activities when I'm doing the teaching, um, as well as the sort of normal learning and teaching games that you always have to build into your modules. I try to achieve these things as well with the modules. I try to develop the student skills and critical analysis of opinion, get them to be able to promote rival viewpoints as well, to understand that people don't think the same as them. The world is a subjective place. People have different ideas and to respect um, opposing views and things like that. Try to assist students in applying your intellectual tools to, uh, in the analysis of uh, real-world examples of peace and conflict. We heard something about that today, this morning as well at the Croc Institute. So what I try to do is get the students to look at current events, historical events, and then apply psychology to understand the, you know, the, the instigation, propagation, uh, re and resolution of conflict and things like that. And really the idea is to help develop an informed and critical citizenry. The idea is what I hope is when the students finish their degree, um, from the modules they've taken, they'll be more critical of the media, they'll be more critical of the government, um, they'll be more inclined to seek out information, criticise it, think, apply theory to that information, and try to really understand what's real, what's false, what's propaganda, etc. And how does it go? So, reflecting on playing the same old chain or playing the same old song for over 15 years. So, what's gone well? What hasn't gone that well? Um, I guess research of peace and conflict is stimulating and depressing. Um, I mean, if you spend a week or two talking to victims of violence, you get some harrowing stories. Obviously not you know, the most cheery of topics to be talking about, but you know, other, other things are, are good as well. What I find really with the undergraduate students is that by the time I actually get to teach them about conflict resolution, negotiation, um, peace building, trying to understand conflict, they already have very ingrained views on the reasons for war. It's already in there. They tend to see war very much as biological. And external, what I mean, external to us, I'm trying to say that you know, there's, it's their fault. You know, Muslims are aggressive, Germans are aggressive. There's something about these people that creates this violence. Um, you know, they have this sort of view. So you're trying to break this down again within the teaching. And again, with things like conflict resolution skills, they tend to be basically, when you try to teach the theories in, uh, about peace building and things, they find it very difficult because they're used to negotiating in the way that they negotiate in the playground over resources, or if you're going to buy a car, you, know, you argue about the price. They have a very, very set way of thinking that really has developed through their life that, again, you need to sort of kind of challenge as well. Um, 
When we were actually looking at something like the PACE studies, really, it's trying to build it across the curriculum. You know, if you have a module here and a module there, it's very difficult. But one of the things within the centre now is we're, we're trying to build it across a lot of different disciplines. So we have things like sociology, sports studies of all things, um, history, politics, theology, and about trying to get people to build aspects of it into, their, into the teaching, English literature, media studies, right across the curriculum. Um, as I said, you know, you can very multidisciplinary approach. So I'm teaching from psych a psychological point of view. You know, any sort of discipline, you could build aspects of conflict and conflict resolution into them. It is possible to do that. Um, obviously, it's nice to see here that there's a lot more institutional support. There's a, a sort of a, a team of people who want to move forward peace studies at Oxford. Again, in my own experience, having institutional support, having a vice chancellor, a dean, who are willing to indulge you do these things is very important as well. To have that support, to be able to go ahead and put these programs on, and um, whether or not they're you know, having to worry about marketing and how attractive they are to students and all these kind of things, that the idea that the institution has a feeling that we need to be doing this is important. Um, and the other thing as well, I mean, one of the things you do find with the students is that coming into contact with this information can really, really change their ideas about what they want to do. People go on then to do uh, doctoral qualifications, master's qualifications in conflict resolution, people going off to work for NGOs and things like that. It really changes the ideas of what they want to do. So it can have a, a really positive impact on the student as well. So just to conclude, um, just about on time as well, uh, I'm just going to take, a again, the civil statement. I think this is really what I match up to and the ideas that I have. It really matches up to the sort of things that the, the, the civil statement concludes as well. But I think with a bit of sort of an idea that you know it's not really walking the park. You have to look at William James is still right. It's very difficult to achieve these goals. It may be true, it may be true that we're not tied to our biology, but people don't believe that, and you have to challenge those ideas. That's that's the difficult part. So thanks very much. <laughs>